Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back to Colossians chapter 3 this evening. Colossians chapter 3, we looked at the end of verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11 this morning. It's very simple and straightforward what's in front of us tonight as we go to verse 12. When I was growing up in youth group, uh, we had a, one of my youth pastors during that time would play a game, very simple game, uh, nothing profound, but I enjoyed it. Maybe you would find it dumb, uh, but it was called item shopping, and he would randomly call out items. He'd divide you up into two, room, two groups. Uh, we could do it in the auditorium, go this side over here and that side over there, um, and he would just ask, I'm looking for a penny from before 1970, or I'm looking for a toothpick, like who in youth group carries toothpick and would actually admit it. Uh, but you never know because some of the girls' purses were like Mary Poppins' bag. Um, and he would go through these different items, calling things out, and people would run up and bring them, and uh, we would keep score and just kind of see who won. I suppose maybe the modern equivalent that's maybe a little more, I don't know, normal would be uh, your everyday carry, like what goes into your pockets and people, you know, think this is something that they're very concerned about and go, well, you know what, I always wear this belt, or I always have my keys, or I always have this kind of pen. Like, some of you are probably pen people. I'm usually like, oh, what did I do with my pen? Um, so I don't want to, you know, have a very nice pen because I'll lose it. Uh, but you're like, no, I always have this pen. I always have my keys. I always have my wallets. And that just is part of what your everyday carry is. If we come back to the text in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 this evening, the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, is saying, here's what you take with you as a Christian. Here's your everyday carry, if you will. Here are things that you are always to have with you. You never leave them behind. If you remember with me this morning, we spent time looking at our identity in Christ once more. Having gone through some negative commands in verses 5 through 9 of here's things that you don't do, you don't carry with you, you don't live out, he then pauses at the end of verse 9 into verse 10 into verse 11 and says, here's your identity, it's your present reality. You've already put off the old man. You've put on the new man. That's who you are. And so he's making an appeal that we would live up to that identity. And so we looked beyond our identity and pre present reality to remember those prohibited activities, to go on and say we're supposed to be pursuing this Christ-like similarity, being, putting on this new man, which is being renewed is the idea of the verb tense after the image or the knowledge of the image of him that created him. And then we do that with a spirit of Christian unity where things that would maybe divide societally, culturally, religiously are, are pushed aside to say, no, we're one in Christ. Tonight, we want to look at verse 12 and see our last thought for the day, your identity and loving responsibilities. Here's what we're to put on. Here's what we're supposed to do. As we look at these, we'll come back to this in a moment, but I would note for you that these loving responsibilities are given as essential responsibilities. They're not negotiable. But I want to, before we even get to that opening phrase of verse 12, go just past it for a moment and have us realize that these essential responsibilities are based on a very special relationship. They're based on a very special relationship. In fact, let me just read verse 12 for us as we dive in this evening. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. I would note for us, we could keep going as well, 
uh, but this is one of those texts where there's enough packed into the one verse that I think we can all walk away with things to grow in, ways for God's grace to work on us, and we'll leave the remainder of the list for next Sunday, Lord willing. But as we look at verse 12, we see this, our identity and loving relationships, and it's they, what he commands here, what he tells us to put on, is based on a special relationship. He describes it three ways in the text. Notice with me first, he says, the elect of God. We might say this special relationship marks us as God's chosen, people that he has chosen for himself. We've touched this before. We spent time on a Wednesday night series walking through this across several weeks. It's one of those biblical truths that we have to make sure we balance very carefully, biblically. We hold intention, uh, you know, even to think about, hey, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And some would look at you and go, that's not logical. It's biblical. It's what we're going to believe because God is higher than our thoughts. He's so much bigger than we can comprehend. And when we come to the scriptures, we, through the New Testament, we have these appeals that tell us anyone who wants, whosoever will, may come to God. Anybody can put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. He died for the sins of the whole world. And yet we also hit a number of texts. For sake of time, I'm not going to go through them all tonight, but he tells us, and God chose you in his son before the foundation of the world. Whether we go again to Romans chapter 8 or Ephesians chapter 1 or we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 or 2 or 4 throughout Scripture to say, here, God has chosen you for himself. We think of the first example of that when God reaches out to a man whose family is pagan worshipers in Abram and says, Abram, get up, go to a land that I'm going to show you. And God chooses unilaterally and mercifully to bless Abraham and say, these are my chosen people. You know, when we begin to look through the New Testament and look at the idea that God chose people as Christians, or as his own, we might say, it's used for a few different purposes. You look at the context of what takes place in, like, Ephesians as one example, or First Peter, I think I failed to mention earlier, uh, you can see he's promoting his own glory. He's saying, because God did this, it's all about him. It calls to mind, like, even some of the language of the Old Testament when you go to Deuteronomy 7, and God has chosen his people Israel, and he's like, I didn't choose you because you were greater than any other nation. I didn't choose you because there was anything lovely about you. I chose you to set my mercy upon you, and it's about his glory alone. That's one of the contexts in which this theme comes up in the New Testament. Another one, like in 1 Peter, is he says, I've chosen you, and it is meant to provide comfort in the midst of incredible difficulty. 1 Thessalonians, again, uses a very similar theme as well. Say, in the midst of what you're going through, don't forget, I chose you. I chose you to be my own. And then the third aspect is encouraging life transformation that's consistent with salvation. Yes, I've chosen you for my glory. Yes, I've chosen you, and it'll help you get through difficulty. But I have chosen you and predestined you, this is Romans 8, that you would be conformed to the image of his dear son, that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is clearly the context here in Colossians chapter 3. To say, because you're chosen of God, because you're his, put on, therefore, these character qualities. Because you have a very special relationship. So live differently because of that relationship. Live differently because of God's grace at, life, at work in your life. We say it's based on a special relationship first because we are chosen. 
Secondly, because we are consecrated. Consecrated. Little side note, I keep saying that word wrong, so you tell me. My mom one time was like, what's this word consecrated? I'm like, sorry, mom, I'm embarrassing you at church. It's consecrated, right? We come to this word holy in the text. It's the word that often in the New Testament actually gets translated saints. It's very different than our modern view of so many people in society like, oh, saints, here are these revered people of church history past for their good works and their holy lifestyle. No, through the New Testament, the idea of saints is here are the ones that God has set apart as his own who are righteous in him. It echoes very well the thought of being the elect of God or the chosen of God and say, now you're declared to be holy. You are marked out as his. You're devoted to him. In fact, it's been, I guess, a little over maybe a year and a half, two years ago, that we walked through that whole Wednesday night study to say, here's what it means to be devoted to God, to be marked out as His. Yes, in holiness, it means that sin will be avoided. To go, if I'm His, if I'm declared to be holy, then I have to avoid sin. But it means that pleasing God will also be pursued. He sets you apart as His own. Think about it this way. Often use the dishes analogy. I'll skip that one this time. Um, but when we talk about marriage, right, we'll say marriage is a holy union. Or, or they are consenting before God and man in holy matrimony. What do we mean? They're setting themselves apart. This is a holy union. It's a devoted union. It's saying no to everyone else, and I am completely committed here. And when we're saved by Jesus Christ, we're elect of God, yes, but we are also holy. We're, we're set apart as His. We're devoted completely to Him in that special relationship. We also need to understand His heart beyond these special designations, though, to go, okay, well, He's, he's chosen us. We're elect of God, and He's declared us to be righteous. We're, we're holy. We're set apart unto Him, but He does all of that with incredible care and love for us. You come to the third term that's used here to mark out this special relationship that we have. We're not only chosen, we're not only consecrated, we are also cherished. He says, and beloved. Saying, you're God's loved ones. And because you are God's loved ones in Christ, here's what you put on. Here's what you do. Again, love is a wonderfully motivating factor to go, you know what, when God has loved me in this way, why would I not live for him? Why would I not do as he wants me to do to please him when he's given his son for me? I would just briefly remind you that the love that God has shown to us is undeserved, it is unfailing, it is absolutely secure. It never wavers or falters. We can look at these commands and sometimes our ability to put on the things that he's telling us to here struggles, whether it's the circumstances of life, whether it's the relationship that uh, we're touching on, where it's a challenge. It's like, man, I, I know that I, I did not have the compassion that I needed to. You know what the wonderful reality is? God's love towards us never changes. It, it's, we're never separated from it. As we look at the loving responsibility in Christ, understand first, if you know Christ as Savior, you're chosen, consecrated, and cherished. Having looked at our special relationship, then let's go back and look at these essential responsibilities 
first by briefly looking at the command there at the beginning of verse 21, or 12 rather, put on therefore. We touched this, I think, a couple weeks ago, but this idea of putting on or putting off is frequent in the New Testament, most well-known probably in Ephesians 4, but also in 1 Peter 2, also here. And it is very much like what we did in you know, getting ready for church this morning or this evening. They go, hey, I got, I got to put my suit coat on. I, I got to put this on. I got to get ready for what's coming. He's telling us when we are God's children, when we are God's people, we are to clothe ourselves in this way. We're to make or pay attention to make sure that these things are present. And so very simply, we're going to walk through the qualities that follow off of this command. You go, hey, as we finish out tonight, as we enter into the week, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what's going on, regardless of the person we're interacting with, because we're in Christ, because he's changed us, we're putting on bowels of mercy. We'll understand what that means here in a moment. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and again, the list continues. When we look at these qualities, the first one we run into is this bowels of mercy. And again, it's that language of the New Testament that the analogy has shifted much from their day to our day. They're speaking of the insides, that which is turned in empathy to someone else when you see them going through difficulty. In modern terms, while it's different than the word that's used, we, we might speak of it or understand it And when we say our heart goes out. We're saying I'm moved on the inside with what I hear, with what I see, and, and my heart is extended towards uh, this part, these people or this situation that's taking place. And this idea of mercy is a, a kindness, a caring concern for others' difficulty. And a, another word that we might use is pity. Not in the sense of like looking down, but just to go, you know, my heart really goes out. I, I, I struggle with what's they're, what they're going through. I, there's uh, a sense of love, a sense of concern, a sense of compassion present for what's going on, and we're moved on the inside as a result. It's the kind of mindset that, again, Paul contends for or challenges the Philippians to have in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, or verse 4, rather, where he says, look not every man on his own things but every man also on the things of others. So look and go, there's someone who's hurting. There's someone who's struggling. My heart goes out to them. I want to express Christ's love to them the way Christ reached out in love to me. And so he's telling them, God's grace has so impacted Christians that their hearts are moved towards the hurting and the suffering. Again, you think if you were here for Wednesday night Bible study, it echoes well the truth we looked at there when we're in Romans chapter 12 should have looked up the verse, I think it's verse 14, where we're told to weep with those who weep. Say, here's someone who's struggling and rather going, oh, it'd be kind of awkward to enter into what they're going through to go, no, I am going to show compassion to them. My heart goes out to them. I'm going to weep in what they're going through. It ought to certainly be true within the body of Christ when we go to 1 Corinthians 12 and we're told there within that body analogy that if one part suffers, all suffer with it. So put on, therefore, beloved, holy, elect of God, these bowels of mercy, this heart of love, of pity, of compassion that goes out to someone in their time of need. Secondly, he says, put on kindness. By the way, I will acknowledge up front, there's a way the Lord has it as we've worked through our different studies. We went through the fruit of the Spirit on Wednesdays, and a lot of these words are very similar, and we kept coming to Colossians 3, so you're hearing it again. 
we come to this word kindness, there are two aspects of this word. They're both uh, somewhat relational in nature, but one speaks to doing what's good or right just simply in dealing with someone. To go, you know what, in love for the person I'm dealing with, this is just right. This is what I'm going to do, regardless of uh, how I feel or how weak I might be, to go, this is the right thing, and so I'm going to do what's relationally appropriate, and that's extending kindness or morally appropriate. Maybe kind of more applicably helpful, the dictionary defines it this way, it's a quality of being helpful, beneficial, good, generous, or benevolent. It is a positive, proactive engagement with others. It fights the flesh to uh, interact with people in the right way. It looks for opportunities to say, you know what, I just want to show love to this person. I just want to extend God's grace to someone. I, I just want to show them kindness. I said this when we worked through it on Wednesday nights, but kindness does not just happen. Kindness is something that takes God's grace working in us. It takes thought. It takes intentionality to say, I'm going to reach beyond myself, and because of what God is doing for me, I just want to show someone an act of goodness in their life. What a wonderful way of application, even for us, just to walk into the next week and go, Lord, how would you use me to show kindness and then follow through as the Spirit prompts? To say, I'm putting this on because God has loved me. He, he's chosen me. He's de- consecrated me as holy. And so this kindness is put on. Put on a heart of mercy. Put on kindness. Third, put on humbleness of mind. Once more, this is not some kind of self-deprecation that's imposed or humiliation that's imposed by others. He talked about that back in chapter 2, verse 18, verse 23, where people were trying to kind of squash them down and these different restrictions that were added. Rather, this is an internal humility that does not think highly of oneself. To go, you know what? I am a sinner who has stood in great need of salvation through Christ, who needs God's grace. Otherwise, I'm given to sin, given to my flesh. And to say, no, I'm going to look at others and view them as higher than myself. To view them with a humility of mind, a humbleness of mind. Again, I, I like the internal focus of the word that's used here. We touched this in our study of the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not a humbleness of words, although that will happen. It's not a humbleness of action, although that should happen too. But it's a humbleness that starts on the inside. It's not put on in an external sense. It's put on because of the work of Christ. It's just true from the inside that God is not, uh, has worked in me in such a way, he's changed me in such a way that I don't have a high view of myself. It does show up interpersonally, though, certainly as well. Think of the words of Philippians 2 once more. We were in verse 4 a moment ago, but in verse 3, he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, mind again. Let each esteem other better than themselves. So because of what God has done for us, because of this unique relationship we have with him, we put on the quality of a heart of mercy, of kindness, of humility, and now fourth, meekness. Popular, it's been said many times, I don't know who originated, but meekness is strength under control. Uh, we said it this way in our Wednesday night study. It's, it's a power that's controlled by humility and love, which is very appropriate in context of what we've been working through. This heart or bowels of mercy, this uh, kindness that's to be present, this humbleness that's to be present. Now, put on this meekness. 
Again, I shared these definitions a couple weeks ago, but I'll use them again. Uh, a couple different Greek lexicons say it this way. It's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, but instead is marked with gentleness, humility, courtesy, and meekness. I like this one. It's a little more extended definition, so listen carefully. It is a quiet and friendly composure which does not become embittered or angry at what is unpleasant, whether in the form of people or fate. We can use the word circumstances. This is an active attitude and deliberate acceptance, not just a passive submission. It's not just, well, you know what, that's what they think or that's what they're going to do or whatever. It is saying, you know what, it's okay. And there's a settledness because of this meekness. If we have meekness present, it impacts how we view everybody around us. You know, when, when someone at the store doesn't treat you quite the way you wanted to be treated or someone at the work is just giving you a hard time, you go, you know what? I need to respond in humility. I need to respond with this strength, this stuff that's rising up within me. I need to control that and make sure that my words are marked by grace. Meekness impacts my view of what I feel is personally unjust. It, impacts my view of what I see as undesirable around me. Again, I said this on a Wednesday night, but I'll remind you again, meekness is not a uh, virtue that's valued in our culture today. Uh, There's so much that appeals against it to say, no, express yourself, promote yourself, don't let others treat you that way. And yet we are reminded that in Christ we had a wonderful picture of meekness. And you can go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and be reminded of how Here's what Christ goes through, and he does not respond in kind. So put on a heart of mercy. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. I don't know which of those the Spirit of God, maybe all, maybe one, two, three, God has singled out for you, but let's look at the fifth one finally. Put on long-suffering. Sometimes this gets translated patient but again, it's, we've touched it many times, not just in the fruit of the Spirit study, but others. It is a state of remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. Don't you hate to wait? I hate to wait. And our culture does not help us in our ability to wait. You know, as the Spirit of God works on us, as we are conformed to the image of Christ, we are to put on long-suffering, to remain tranquil while waiting. Someone was like, I'll wait. But calmness? No way. But beyond that, that's the most general definition of the word. There is a more specific sense in which it's used. It not only speaks of a state of remaining tranquil while waiting an outcome, it's a state of being able to bear up when provoked. That's perhaps where maybe you struggle even more when someone reaches out and and is unkind to you, mistreats you, and you feel the sense of injustice to go, you know what, I'm going to remain tranquil. I'm, I'm going to bear up under provocation. I'm going to put on long-suffering. Again, Christ is our example in that same regard, that same uh, situation. 1 Corinthians 13 points to this quality as a mark of agape love to say, if we're going to have charity, because we're to have that above all else, you know, he starts that chapter with those familiar words, so I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. I am nothing. He goes through these different gifts, some incredible, miraculous things, and says, but if we don't have love, we're nothing. 
And then he starts his list and says, now charity suffereth long. Love suffers long. We're looking at these loving responsibilities, and the one that we conclude with tonight says we ought to remain tranquil while waiting. We ought to bear up when faced with provocation. It ought to be true in our homes. You, know, you live in close quarters, you're like, families love each other, and they should. That's a wonderful thing. But sometimes we get on each other's nerves. And to go, you know what, put on long-suffering at home. As a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, perhaps as a child with your parents, put on long-suffering. It ought to also certainly be true in our church family as well as we interact with one another. And he's going to bring our relationships to one another in the very next verse saying, forbearing one another in love. But beyond just people, I would remind you that there are circumstances, just broad things, the way God has worked in his sovereignty to say, I'm going to work you through this, and it's not any one person's fault, but you go, you know what, I need to have long-suffering. I'm going to be patient, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to trust God in that process. So again, whether it's tonight as you go home, it should be true, but tomorrow as you get up and you think about your day and the things that you need to have with you to get through your day, well, I would encourage you in light of what God has put in front of us here to go, I need to put on a heart of mercy, bowels of mercy. I need to put on kindness. I need to put on this humility of mind, this meekness, and long-suffering. Let's pray. Father, with the truths that we've looked at tonight, I recognize well that they really represent the character of your son. Not just the character, but the, the, I guess the innate person that he is. And Lord, you desire to work in us, to conform us to his image, to be renewing us in that knowledge of him. And so, Lord, I ask for each believer here that through your spirit, you would convict where there's need to grow, there's need to change. I pray that you provide grace for each of us that uh, these things, these qualities would be growing within us this next week so that you would use us to touch others' lives and to bring yourself glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.